presentation. Um, thanks very much, Daniel. I'm happy that I recorded this kind of introduction mm. so that whenever I feel bad about my research, <laughs> I can re-listen to it and feel a bit better. Um, okay, um, so thanks so much for coming to our panel today. Um, the title of my paper today is Can Reparations Transform Societies? Transformative Justice at the International Criminal Court. And in my paper today, I want to focus on a new concept that has come to inform the ICC's and the trust funds approach to reparations and assistance. And that is the concept of transformative justice. And I think this concept really poses new challenges to defining the purpose and the boundaries of reparations at a time where the ICC is actually beginning to implement its first reparation order in the Lubanga case. And based on my fieldwork in The Hague, but also in Uganda, um, I want to trace a bit more uh, how this idea of transformative justice is shaping the Trust Fund for Victims assistance programs in Northern Uganda and what we can learn from this in terms of the challenges that the ICC's reparation programs will encounter. And while the critique of transformative justice, to the extent that people know about it, the critique has been focused on uh, the ICC's limited capacity, limited money, also the question whether the ICC should be at all involved in something which is called transforming societies. I actually, I actually think my, my own fieldwork actually revealed that there are much more fundamental or hidden questions that are far from resolved, um, especially in the context of Northern Uganda, uh, what and who should actually be transformed in Northern Uganda and how. And I would like to dis discuss these questions a bit further with you today. Um, but before I go into the, into the particular work of the Trust Fund in Northern Uganda, I want to provide just a very brief overview of the ICC's victims' mandate. Uh, so the ICC is the first international criminal justice institution that provides victims with extensive rights to participate in the legal proceedings. That's the right to victim participation, which is encapsulated in Article 68.3 of the Rome Statute, but also with the right to receive reparations. And for this purpose, the Rome Statute has established a trust fund for victims in Article 79. And a trust fund for victims um, is an independent body within the Rome Statute system. Mathilde already explained that very well, uh, but which is, of course, very closely linked to the ICC. And it has two mandates. The first is victims' reparations, where the trust fund implements um, court-ordered reparation awards against convicted perpetrators. And the second mandate is victim assistance, where the trust fund uses voluntary contributions it receives from donors, especially states, um, to provide victims and their families um, with physical rehabilitation, material support, and or psychological rehabilitation in situations where the court is active. And the interesting part of the victim assistance mandate is that it's not linked to trial proceedings. So for example, in northern Uganda, the trust fund has been working since 2008, even though until very recently, we didn't even have a trial going on. So it's a bit different from, from reparations. So now, what is transformative justice? Um, transformative justice, essentially, is a challenge to the conventional understanding of reparations in international law. And the conventional understanding is full restitution, and we find the statement here, um, reparation must, as far as possible, wipe out all the consequences of the illegal act and re-establish a situation which would, in all probability, have existed if that act had not been committed. Now, it's in, in the context of this conventional understanding that the Trust Fund for Victims, 
But also, actually, many women's activists and NGOs have argued that, look, after war crimes, after crimes against humanity, after genocide, it's often not appropriate to try to restore victims to the status quo ante. Because the situation that prevailed before the conflict is often a situation of structural violence, of gender discrimination, and of the marginalization of certain groups. And that's also part of the reason why the crimes happened in the first place. And the majority of victims are likely to have been the dispossessed and the powerless when the conflict erupted. So the idea is that it's not enough, or not even appropriate, to try to put victim into that dismal state. And for this reason, the Trust Fund for Victims has recommended to the trial chamber in the Lubanga case to adopt transformative reparations as part of the ICC's reparation principles and modalities. And they say transformative reparations may serve not only as a form of reparative justice, but also as an opportunity to overcome structural conditions of inequality and exclusion in the ICC situation countries. And it's also important to note that the Trust Fund didn't just come up with this idea itself. Um, it heavily relies on civil society documents, especially the Nairobi Declaration, the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, and UN documents in developing this idea of transformative justice. Now, there's an obvious critique of the, the concept. Uh, and, and people at the ICC will talk a lot about this. So first of all, limited money. The trust fund has a very limited pot of money which it has to distribute among all the situation countries. And you may say you can't transform anything from that small pot of money. The second is limited sovereignty. I mean, arguably, if you really want to bring about structural change, you need to have the power to, to change laws, to enforce laws. Um, and of course, that's something that the trust fund or the ICC can't do. It's the state's power, the state's sovereignty. And then there's the question of development interventionism. I mean, should an external institution such as the trust fund, which is very closely linked to a legal institution, a neutral institution, should it at all be involved in something which is called transformative justice? I mean, especially at a time when the ICC already faces challenges of being allegedly a neo-colonial institution. Um, but to be fair to the trust fund, the trust fund never said, hey, we're going in there and we're changing societies. Um, in, in a sense, they, what they're saying is we want to use our assistance programs to try to push towards that goal. We try to contribute to transformative justice. And they also don't work alone. The trust fund works through local partners on the ground and also through government structures. So I think that if we want to evaluate the trust fund's assistance programs, we should really evaluate them against the more modest aim of is this actually contributing, leading to structural change? And I think this is really far from clear at this point. I mean, um, my fieldwork actually brought to light much more fundamental and underlying questions which are absolutely not resolved. Uh, especially what should be transformed in northern Uganda, what's the society that should be transformed, who should be transformed and how. And the trust fund itself actually heavily relies in its theory of transformation on the role of what it calls local change agents. And local change agents are traditional and faith leaders, women's grassroots organizations, educators, local government authorities, and the media. And the trust fund wants to empower those organizations to do the structural change. 
Um, but my own my, my own interviews my, my own interview suggested that those actors actually have very conflicting and often contradictory visions of what transformative change looks like in northern Uganda. And this especially concerns issues of gender equality and women's empowerment. And even some of the trust fund's partners who have also received money from the trust fund, even though they endorse women empowerment, they may actually have quite different priorities and different understandings of what it means. For example, I interviewed, um, I interviewed a former trust fund partner in Gulo, and after the interview he gave me the booklet of his church. And some of the passages there really made for uncomfortable reading. I mean, there was, there was the story of Esther, who, uh, who's an orphan and whose uncle offered uh, to pay for her school fees in return for sexual services. And then the booklet comments on the story and says, the good news is that Esther is a born Anglican Christian. Her love for the Lord has made her determined to live a sexually pure life, even when it meant being uneducated. She could not trade the temple of the Holy Spirit for a mere 500,000 shillings for school fees. So the good news is not that Esther now is protected from her terrible uncle or that she has access to free schooling, but that she managed to preserve her sexual purity in difficult circumstances. But even the women themselves may have different priorities. I mean, man, many of the NGOs who I spoke to who work on women's empowerment told me that their work is very difficult because Many women after war in, in northern Uganda um, want mainly community integration and acceptance. That's, that's their main priority. And they will be very reluctant to be part of any transformative approach. They tell you, what do you want from me? I'm already a pariah, and now you want to add another burden? So I think that there is really no shared vision of transformative justice among those actors that the trust fund believes are local change uh, agents. And that's also not surprising because, of course, transformative justice or gender justice also very fundamentally challenged the power of many traditional stakeholders, for example, religious leaders. Um, but so far, I have actually left untouched the premise that the trust fund is trying where it can to push towards structural change. Um, but the funny or, or the striking thing I found when I listened to my interviews coming back actually was that there was an almost seamless transition in the interviews from the idea of transformative justice as changing structures to the idea of transformative justice as changing people, changing individuals. And I usually talked about the concept in, in the former sense because that's the official definition that the trust fund also pursues. But my interviews usually just talked about it in the later sense. And I didn't even notice that quite when it was going on. So for example, uh, one of the partners said, the most important thing the trust fund has ever tried to support is transforming somebody. For example, the trust fund has been trying to provide artificial limbs to people who were, who were amputated during the war. Now he or she has an artificial limb. He or she can walk, can work, and participate in economic activities. And in the beginning, I thought, okay, maybe they haven't understood the concept. But actually, I realized I was the one who didn't understand. And in fact, if you look at the trust fund's programs, its methodology, and the evidence it uses to illustrate the success of its programs, I think it's fairly clear that the trust fund is really aiming at individual transformation, and that they're not really touching the structural transformation aspect. For example, in the trust fund's programs, there's a lot of emphasis on psychosocial support, which of course aims at individual transformation. Even more collective programs, such as community therapy or peace school, 
are actually designed to help people to work better within existing structures rather than changing them. This is also reflected in the methodology that the trust fund is using. Uh, the trust fund, uh, it was recommended it should use a positive deviant approach. And the idea is that you take someone who made it against the odds, for example, a former child soldier who now has a livelihood, who now has a job, and you make this person a role model for your assistance programs. So instead of trying to change the odds, you are taking this exceptional individual and you make other victims learn from them. And I think when we look at the victim survivor stories that the Trust Fund presents to say our programs are working, it also becomes clear that they are aiming at individual transformation and actually at a very limited individual transformation. So for example, that's the story from the website of the Trust Fund. Mary, uh, an abductee and former wife of Kony, was abused and tortured by the Lord Resistance Army and then raped by the Uganda People's Defense Force. Mary's history made her unmarriageable. She tried to report the rape to the police but was not given a hearing. With the psychological help of the trust fund's partner, she learned to express her anger and sadness in a healthy way and her relationships with others improved too. So actually we're not changing much here about the type of structural violence that constrains Mary's life. We're not, we're not, we're not actually changing the patriarchy, the police, the marriage customs that make Mary's life so difficult, but we just help her to deal a bit better with those, those things. And now you may say, okay, fair enough, the trust fund isn't doing structural transformation, but hey, changing people or transforming people may be good enough. It may be a more realistic goal for such a small institution. But my concern is that transforming people often becomes a demand on victims to essentially transform themselves um, into productive members of society as soon as possible and with very little in terms of assistance. And I think to understand what I mean here, I think we really have to see the bigger picture, and that is that the trust, we have to contextualize the trust funds programs in two discourses, discourses which are very powerful. Uh, the first discourse is the survivor discourse, which uh, emphasizes that, or which celebrates victims' agency and resilience, and insists on calling victims survivors. And the second discourse is the development discourse, which is based on the philosophy of self-help. And the Trust Fund's programs in Northern Uganda are really steeped in both of those discourses. For example, the Trust Fund has come up with this new term, victim survivor, which you find in all of the, the, the Trust Fund's documents, which in a sense is an attempt by the Trust Fund to reconcile, on the one hand, that it is bound to the Rome Statute, which uses the terminology of victims, so they can't completely get rid of that. But at the same time, they also want to conform to the kind of public health discourse and activist discourse which says that no, it's not victims, it's survivors. And you can see that the trust funds programs are essentially development programs. You can see it when you look at the, the type of uh, methodology they use. For example, there's a lot of emphasis on microcredit programs, on village uh, savings and loan schemes, they're very typical self-help development programs. And my concern is that the combination of those two discourses means this focus on survivors' agency and self-help creates normative expectations of individual betterment while at the same time undermining actually the case for structural change and comprehensive support for victims from the state and international community. So ultimately I think it is actually the victim who has to do the transformation and it's not the state, it's not the society, it's not the international community, it's not the economy. And, and 
And logically, if you are so focused on self-help and exceptional individuals, of course you then also get frustrated with those victims who don't make it against the odds, who are the norm if you want. So for example, that's a quote from a women's uh, civil society representative who talks about female victims who have received vocational training in suing. And she says, it takes them so long to learn how to sue. They end up not being able to produce anything, anything so fantastic apart from bags, and then the production is not so huge. How do we enlarge the production and push them away from the present so that they can produce for export? But honestly, they're very happy to sew two dresses, hang it in front of their shops, and then go to their gardens. Women are usually tailors and hairdressers. And then you want to tell them, why can't you be a designer? Why can't you think about producing? So these women may have received like a year of vocational training, but the idea is, why aren't you that amazing entrepreneur who now produces for export? So to, to, just to, to go to the, towards the conclusion of the paper, I think in practice that actually transformative justice may shift the responsibility for the transformation from the state to the individual victim survivor. It often really comes down to assisting people in better performing the societal and economic roles assigned to them by the existing system. And of course that's the same system in which terrible crimes were committed against them. So to conclude, um, the critique of transformative justice has really focused a lot about on money, of course, we don't have the money for it, we don't have the mandate for it, that's not our job. But I think in practice the court's uh, practitioners shouldn't be too much worried because the trust fund isn't really, isn't really trying too much to push in that type of structural transformation. And I, I actually personally think that transformative justice is still a very interesting and important idea because it also questions this ideal of uh, full restitution, as, uh, especially in conflict situations. But we need to better align the theory, theory and the practice here because I think there's a real risk that the practice not only doesn't achieve structural transformation, but actually even works against it. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Leila. Thank you very